Hi, welcome to All Things Eerie, where we will be go into in depth about murder mystery and the most obscure local lore. Today's subject is going to be the Salem witch trials. Um, that's what we're going to get our feet wet by talking about and who started it, why, who's affected, and why they chose those victims. There's a lot to cover, um, so let's get started on that. But before we do, let me start off by talking a little bit about myself. I'm not going to talk a lot about it, but um, I'm going to talk about why I started this podcast. Uh, uh, it was something that I thought, hey, this would be a great idea. I love murder mystery. I love the fact of trying to figure out who done it, um, especially the um, like law and order. Um, I was there when first law and order started. Uh, law, law and order SVU. I don't watch it now. Welcome to episode two of All Things Erie from Erie PA. Today joining us is Jackie. She will be discussing the Mahalovic kidnapping and murder. How are you doing today, Jackie? Doing good. You sound thrilled. I'm really excited to go over this, actually. Well, today we want to give you a trigger warning. We'll be discussing the death of a child. So, what what happened to her and um, and everything? Normally, we would be trying to be more, um, you know, going over things in depth and things um, of what happened, but we want to be a little bit more serious with this because of it being a child. So there is a trigger warning with this. Um, it's also the 30th anniversary of uh, the disappearance of Amy Mahalovic. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to start out talking about the Axe Murder Hollow, which is one of Erie's local lores. Um, in researching this, I got some of my information from obviously the internet, news stations that go through these things every Halloween, um, but it was very interesting to note um, the story that goes along with this. So some of it's my words, some of it's mixed in with other people's things. I will be noting my sources on our webpage. Um, but here we go, this is the lore. It's late in October in the e and the evening's cool. The teenage boy takes his date to the woods in the Wise Library area of Mill Creek. Mill Creek Township. He pulls his car off Thomas Road and parks. The young man and his girlfriend hope to see, or maybe secretly hope not to see, the axe-wielding ghost of a farmer. Me personally, I would hope not to. That's just me. I don't know, Jackie. I just wouldn't even go. Why would, why would you do that? There's some white people stuff right there. <laughs> I'm sorry, only... You're freaking white. <laughs> so... That is crazy. Like, and it's, 
it's like the whole like movie aspect, like scary movie aspect, where it's always the white family that always goes to like buys the haunted house, no one it looks creepy, goes in the basements and then gets haunted. Like, please tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> well, apparently it's date night in Mill Creek Township. According to local legend, the farmer has been haunting that section of the woods since hacking his wife and her lover to death nearby. <laughs> Talk about some anger issues. Some inadequacy issues, probably. Mm. At first, the two lovers wait. It's quiet, and then a strange, soft rustling close to the ground like footsteps through dry leaves. Nope. Other sounds, like a moan, mm -hmm. approach the car. Usually, if you hear moaning from a car, you just walk the other way because you know what's going on. So wait, are they out of the car or are they still in the car? They're still in the car. You turn on that ignition and you get out of there. Oh, just wait. Literally, first sound, I'm out. Bye. Mm. Gone. It's nothing, just the wind, the young man says bravely <laughs> to his girlfriend. The young man tries to start the car to get the heat on. He says... But the battery is dead. That's why he drives the car. Get out, run. The couple becomes nervous and move closer to one another to keep warm. They stay together like that for five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Until finally, except for a strange choking sound, they finally stop. When he finally tries the car, the engine tries the car's engine again, it starts. But when the headlights come on, blood is everywhere. Oh no. On the ground, on the car, mm -hmm. even dripping from the trees. No. Big N-O-P. Ah, uh, sounds like some friends had some fun. <laughs> That's one version, and it's been one of Ears legends for at least 60 years. Police claim, and as far as historians are aware, there never was an axe murder in the hollow off Staratini Road. <laughs> so, okay. you know, some people have had some very active imaginations, and apparently they've been playing the phone game. Um, but there have been generations of young adults that have gone to this area hoping to see or hear the ghostly farmer and tell stories of stalled engines and eerie sounds during late night vigils in the woods. Some have claimed that it was rummies. Well, in the story it says gypsies, but we know that's uh -huh. not correct. They say that it was a Roman king that haunts the woods because he chopped off the head of his false-hearted queen or that the Rummy have uh, once camped in the area, told stories of the phantom to keep others away. If so, it didn't work because people st still keep going there. This legend can be found on haunted carriage tours because of its popularity. There have been many different stories of this legend. One has to do with three bridges. Another has about birds singing on one side of the road and not on the other side. Well, maybe they just didn't want to cross the road. I don't know. But the, like, if animals don't want to be on that side of the road, that means there's some mess up over there. There is some evil, evil voodoo stuff going on that, like, animals always know. They just do. They have that sense. You trust animals. about voodoo. So, see, now you're starting it. It's just a phone call. 
Wow. You know, one person says one thing, it just gets added on. Bad gas travels faster in a small town. <laughs> you would know. <laughs> There's even one about seeing the actual farmer's house, but no house was ever associated with the story. The story itself seems to be entirely made up, but tales get created and continued. If you speak to some of the local seniors, they have said that back in the 50s, people were talking about it. And the reason why the story persists is that it was something that was done while you were in high school. You went to high school around here. Did anybody ever say anything about that? No, I've never even heard about it. No, so apparently, did I tag you in the story about this? You did, but with that particular news Yeah, thing, we couldn't you have go to, on there and you have, have to sign, sign up. up and that's yeah, just frustrating. So it is very frustrating. So yeah, no, I've never but, heard the story. So apparently, it's that local school district, and yeah. that explains a lot. Wait, um, it's school district I went to? No. Oh no, it was not great. Anyway. <laughs> Can't edit that one out. Um, the reason why the story persists is that it was something like I said you did while you were in high school. Go to Axmurder Hollow as a date. It's kind of a lover's lane. A quote. That was a quote from one of the people that were interviewed. So, I don't know about you, but if somebody comes up and asks me for a date, and they're saying, hey, let's go to Axe Murder Hollow, um, anything that has murder, axe, or hollow in it, I'm gonna say no. Like, so, what, what type of person do you have to be where you wanna go on a date to somewhere where it's rumored you're going to see a ghost of a killer? Well, there's people that like to see that stuff, and um, but typically if I want to see that stuff, I'm going to go with a group of friends. That way, hopefully those friends have my back and are going to not make sure that I'm the last person behind and I'm the one that's getting the axe. Or, so, or I'm just going to put this out there, don't go. <laughs> don't do it. Don't go. Well, that's always, you know, fun, but hey, that's more than a choice. Yeah. Anyways. But anyways, that's one of the local lores here in Erie, you know, the Axe Murder Hollow. So nice. if you're ever in Erie during October, you can always check it out and maybe take one of the carriage tours and, and or um, and try to look it up, um, but just be be aware that it is on um, its, its private property. So um, if you do go there, somebody might chase you off their property. Um, you know, that's, that's, always, that's always a chance that you take. So um, that, sorry about that, that was my phone. <laughs> um, so just keep that in mind. But anywho, um, I am going to pass you on to Jackie she is going to uh, talk about um, Amy Mahalovic, and um, I'm going to let you begin. Cool. So, as Mom said in the intro, um, she was saying that this is, what, the 30th anniversary? It'll be the 30th anniversary on October 27th this year. Yeah, so we're... Hello, uh, Please forgive us. That is our cat <laughs> who is visiting. Um, uh, my son, he is out of um, town working, and so I am babysitting. 
and she she only likes to visit when you're busy. Yeah. So, all right. So, what we have here is that on October 27th, 1989, 10-year-old Amy Mahalovic walked to Bay Square after school with her friends to meet with someone who had called her previously in the week. This caller had talked to Amy about helping him buy her mom a gift since she was given a promotion at work. In some reports, it was stated that not only did this person promise Amy $45 to buy her mom a gift, but had also promised her to give her money to buy herself a gift as well. Um, Amy's parents insisted that she would never have gone off with a stranger. However, even though the caller had told Amy to keep this a secret, she did not. Not only did her brother Jason know, because he had overheard the conversation, but Amy had told her friends about it, that she was walking with the afternoon about the phone call. So Amy felt that, according to one of her friends, Amy felt that maybe this would be a good idea for her and her mom, since her and her mom had been fighting that week. Um, Jason, Amy's brother, was supposed to meet Amy that afternoon. He had gotten out of school an hour after Amy did, but when he had started to walk towards the square, he saw some bullies that had been picking on him, so he turned around and had gone home. While at the school, Amy was also seen by her friends talking to a man in front of Baskin Robbins. The description they provided was that he was white, aged between 20 and 30, about 5'10", with a medium build, dark hair, maybe wearing glasses, and wearing a beige windbreaker with plaid lining. Now, I have to jump in in here because I helped do some of the research on this. And someone said that they discounted uh, the description that was given by the kids because they were 10 year old kids. Now, I don't know about you or anybody who has kids. Kids are very observant. And if they are watching something and they take note of it, they are, they can be very descriptive about something. Um, and, and my example is, um, when you are giving, um, like, uh, cards and you are showing them to say an adult and then to a child, and then you put them down and you ask, ask a child, what did you see in that car? Describe what you saw, or did you see this? Or did you see that? A child can give you very descriptive items that were in the background, the foreground, or as many items as you ask. An adult cannot because kids can be very observant. And the fact that they were dismissing the, pers the description that they gave, I was very surprised about. And it was all because well, they were 10 year olds. What do they know? So I was really, really surprised about that. But then again, we've come so far in today's age in what kids can observe and what they right, what they retain. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty 
it's pretty unfair, but that was that time where it was, oh, well, well, we're kids, you know, they don't, they probably don't know what they're talking about, they don't understand the seriousness, but, like, children at that age, they can't understand the seriousness, like, that's probably why they were able to give such a description, was because, hey, we don't know who that guy is, and he's with our friend, you know, we should, this is something important, and they remember it. Right. But they also said that he was wearing pressed khakis and a button-up shirt. Um, there was also a witness at the auto body shop who saw a girl he believed to be Amy in the back of a sedan. The man had asked that the man she was with had asked for directions to I-480. When questioned later, the witness did ID a suspect. So, I don't know why I gave up the name so Sorry. Um, around... Uh, okay. So, whatever. The friends who saw Amy with this man thought it was Amy's dad. Back to the girls who made the description. So, they originally thought it was her dad. He had just walked up to Amy and was putting his hand on her back to lead her away then laid down to whisper something to her ear and then put an arm around her shoulders and led Amy away. So that could also be why, you know, they, another aspect of, well, they didn't know who he was, they just assumed it was her dad, you know, could it have been her dad at first, you know, and then they were just like, well, it wasn't, who knows what they saw. And if you think about it, whenever somebody is trying to be very confident and this person was very confident. He was very confident in the time frame that he called. He was very confident in what he um, spoke about on the phone. You know, putting somebody, putting your hand on the uh, middle of somebody's back, drawing them away from somebody, you're not yanking them away. You're just casually drawing like, them away. Yeah. Hey, come on here with me. We're, it's okay. Remember, we're going to go get that gift for your mom. You know, she got that great promotion at work. And don't forget, you know what? We're going to get that gift for you, too. You get to pick something out, too. So, you know, and a 10-year-old who has aimed and fighting with their mom, if that, if that is the case, like I said, you know, some of, the, some of the research in it, as you well know, it was, you know, when we were talking about this, it was, it was kind of like bits and pieces here and there all over the place. So, I mean, but somebody being that confident and just leading them away, it was, you know, just, you know, what are kids going to think? She wasn't fighting with them. Right. She must have known them. There must have been someone close to her family. And that's what, you know, some people thought. They thought that she knew them. Right. So, around 3.20 to 3.30 that day, Jason had called his mom to let her know that Amy wasn't home from school yet. Just as Margaret was getting ready to leave, she received a call from Amy stating that she was at choir practice, but when Margaret corrected Amy about the days of practice, Amy had said that today was for new people and that she was fine. Margaret still left early, and when she got home, she saw that Amy still wasn't home. So she went to her school and saw that her bike was still at the school. It was still locked up into the bike rack at the school, actually. Um, Her mother spoke to 
Officer Spatzel, who was the who was the officer who started the search for the missing girl, while friends of the family also helped. Um, they helped by doing what they could. The dad came home around 6 p.m. that evening. This is where discrepancies in the research start. Some say that the news networks would not run Amy's picture because she was not missing for 24 hours or reported missing. However, there was a article found stating that there was one channel that did run Amy's picture. The FBI was alerted and mobilized 14 hours after Amy's disappearance. The command post was set up inside Bay Village Police Department. Again, dis more discrepancies. On one, it said that Special Agent Dick Wren led the investigation, but if you look more closely at other information, Investigator Phil Torsney, now retired, late in 2013, but states that he was originally signed to the case. He had only been in the FBI at that point for five years. Then on February 8, 1990, over a hundred days later, 45 miles away, Amy's body was found by a jogger off Country Road 1181 in Rebels Township in rural Ashland County, Ohio. This is the trigger warning. Most people do not describe or have a description of how Amy's body was found. However, since there is a debate as to if Amy's body was even there for that length of time, I believe we should discuss this. However, it is graphic and this is a death of a child. So if you do not want to hear this, you might want to fast forward about five minutes. The jogger had gone to the closest home after he had found Amy's body to call the police office. When they arrived, the sheriff on scene was Roger Martin, who viewed Amy's body. She was laying face down 12 feet from the road. Her body badly decomposed, teeth had started to fall out and sunk into the ground below her. He could tell it was Amy by the color of her hair. She was still wearing the same clothes that she had gone missing in back in October. Amy was wearing sweatpants and a lavender t-shirt, but they had been taken off and replaced and put back on. Her boots were still not found and only a single turquoise horse earring lay nearby. Amy's body had been sent to the Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga thank you, mm -hmm. county coroner. Amy had been struck on the back of the head with a blunt instrument. She had been stabbed three to four times on the left side of her neck According to the report, she may have lived about 30 minutes after this trauma. So that that is a lot to digest. And they said that her body had been there that entire time, that they found spores growing on her clothing. Um, the biggest discrepancy is from the jogger. The jogger claims that her body was not there. The reason, the whole reason for the description is like the part where her teeth fell out and was sunk into the ground. Um, the jogger swears her body was not there the day prior. Swears that she was not there. I mean, that's that's what I have read in other articles. So, you know, that's, again, you know, the trigger warning, um, but, and, and, you'll, and you'll hear why more right. she goes on. Um, two, 
two sketches have been done on possible suspects, um, one given by Amy's friends that saw her speaking to the unknown male, and the other by the adult from the auto shop when he saw the man walk up. Oh no, this is a different man. So there's three people that saw him. So this, this one was done by a man walked up to the Salvation Army. So this was a bell ringer there, and a man had come up to him to confess to having killed Amy. He then walked into the grocery store, came back out, said it again, and then drove off in a dark brown Chevrolet pickup. Right. That's nuts. Like, I, I can't even begin to imagine what that man was feeling, like, when that somebody said that to him. Like, that's insane. But, also on the day of Amy's disappearance, then-Officer Mark Spatzel was at Amy's school giving a presentation about stranger danger. Spatzel would later go on to become the chief of police. So during the first days of the investigation, the amount of information that the police and FBI received was absolutely overwhelming. They had help from the Kalahaga... Kalahaga... Is that how it is? <laughs> Now I have to look at it because <laughs> you're screwing Sorry, it up guys. in my head. Cuyahoga. Cuyahoga. We need Kaya to write it out phonetically Hoga. for me. I am bad at English and speaking. You know, it's my first language. Um, Cuyahoga Regional Information Service. It was a system that links uh, law enforcement computers together from across the country while advanced at the time was still strained by the amount of information processed through it. It was designed to process around a thousand inquiries per case and had already surpassed that. Before this was going on, life in the Mahalovic family wasn't easy. Margaret was drink had a drinking problem and her and Mike were already in talks about getting a divorce. With that going on, on top of it is when Margaret and Amy were fighting. Um, so that could mean, you know, like, like from in the beginning, they were fighting. Anybody that comes in and is being nice to Amy, you know, and says that he's finding the family, or if she did actually know this person and says, "Hey, you know what? I know your mom got a promotion. You know, let's go buy her a gift." Yeah, you guys have been fighting. Let me help you. Like, let me yeah. give you money and to help you. Supposedly, dad didn't make a whole lot of money, and mom's just getting back to work, getting back up on her feet. So, so with all the tension going on, would that have made Amy more susceptible to a unknown caller? Probably, because but, this is probably a very emotional time in her life. Kids are very susceptible to. Um, people like this and I don't know if he like knew this was all going on he had to have known somehow you know because when children are in like a situation where you know emotions are running high they're having a hard time understanding what's going on because she probably could feel the tension between the parents and not fully know what was happening mm -hmm. you know anyone could just come in and say anything to her dad make her feel like they could fix it. That's all they want is someone to fix it. Yep. But, um, so there were hundreds of suspects, and we will not name them on this podcast for reasons that they're, they are still, stuck, still suspects. There's no evidence that they are guilty. 
we do know the person we got some of our information from, which we are very thankful for, has his theories, but we will not name anyone. They will have lot. They still have their own lives to live, and these are, you know, small towns. Again, yeah, absolutely small towns. Uh, Erie itself is the third largest city in Pennsylvania, and you would not believe how small it actually is. It is a very small community, and if you went down the road and you got into an argument with your neighbor, I guarantee everybody in the block knows about it. It is a very small town, and this town that it happened in, it's way smaller. So these people that have been under suspicion have had these issues going on for years. So just, I know people who have, you know, you can go online and you can look these names up and again the person that uh we also got the information from um he has named names but he has also gone on recently to his blog and he has said that he wish he hadn't have done that so and he's learned from his mistakes i i am not going to put these people back in the limelight again um, for that very fact, they have their lives to live and they are constantly being scrutinized by the people they live around and they will always be under that magnifying glass of the people they live around. So, you know, you want to do your own research and be your, be your own, you know, armchair, uh, private eye, that's fine. But right. form your own opinion. Yeah, you form you form your own opinion. But the blogger that you know I use some of the information from, he does have his own suspect in mind, and he does believe that there is one person that is guilty. So, but that being said, you know we can only form our opinions. Me personally, I have a totally other idea in mind, and. It is not what he would probably even think of. So, but that being said. Mm -hmm. um, so they include people who live near the Mahalovics, um, parents of Amy's friends, convicted sex offenders who were not yet in prison at the time of the abduction. Most did not have an alibi for the day of Amy's disappearance on October 27. And out of all of them, even crossed paths with each of the girls. So there were more there were more girls who received calls, mm -hmm. but it looks to be that Amy was the first one to actually show up. So the abductor attempted to seduce each of these girls over the phone before successfully luring Amy to the shopping center, which is the biggest clue for the case and the first careless mistake the killer made. Um, the three prior attempts were with girls who went to the school in North Olmstead. Yeah, North Olmstead. They were roughly the same age as Amy, about 10 to 11 years old. He called them at home, gave them the same pitch, but didn't take the, they didn't take the bait. 
was it because of, like you were saying earlier, the situation at home, the tension, just the emotional, like, roller coaster of everything going on with her mom fighting and even just feeling bad and wanting to do something to make up for it and getting her a present because of her, promo her recent promotion. Um, but see, the thing of it is, though, is mom did not get a promotion. All she did was get a job. That's the thing. It, this is just a pitch that he had. He just, it was just, hey, you know what? But because they were fighting so much, mm -hmm. Amy didn't know. Right, she probably had no idea. She probably thought maybe she did get a promotion. She didn't say anything because she was mad at me. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, wanting to make it up to her, or was it because he sweetened the deal by saying, hey, if you come with me and I'll help you buy this gift for your mom, I'll buy you something too. Right. Um, after several years, it was discovered that all of the girls had visited the Lake Erie Nature and Science Centers in Bay Village. Also, all of the girls had signed and given their name and phone numbers for the logbook by the front door. So that's probably, obviously, how he got their names, their numbers, and then... Right, because uh, in some of the research, the one girl actually had a non-listed number. Now, for some of you who did not grow up with home phones, <laughs> Jackie, I grew up with a home phone. What are you talking about? You had it for a few years, and then we went to sell. But for right. people who had non-listed phone numbers, you know that your phone number was not listed in the phone book. And for those who do not know what phone books are. They're big books that were delivered to your homes that you could look up they physically. They phone books. Yeah, well, they, you could go in, look up whatever number and name a number and you just call. But a non-listed number was a number that just, you did not get listed in the phone book. Now, the one of the girls had a non-listed number. So that's why they were confused. How did this guy get her number? That's how we got her number. Because she, she, put, that because she put that phone number down. And I want to contest your comment about me not having a phone growing up or the home phone because I distinctly remember us having one when yeah. I was in middle school. So, yeah, we had one. one for a while and then we went to cell phone. And yeah, because your sister killed us with the text messages. 819. Okay, wasn't that when she was. <laughs> Digression. Yeah. Um, back to the story. We'll talk about that like on our own time. Um, so. Back to the story, the police nor the FBI have given up to find out who killed Amy. Mm -hmm. So this investigation is still going 30 years later. Absolutely. They just don't have the, the same manpower going towards it. Right. They have the one FBI agent on it, um, but they, it's still, it, it is still an open case. So over the years, um, though sadly things did not work out well for the Mihaljevics, they did end up divorcing a year after Amy's death. Um, Margaret and Jason stayed on living in that home on Linford Road until 1992 when Margaret found a smaller home. Um, Margaret did become a victim's rights advocate for Ohio Attorney General Lee Fisher until he was replaced back in 1995. Um, then in August of 2000, Margaret moved to Las Vegas to live with her mother. Margaret was diagnosed with lupus and died the following year. Other accounts have listed it as chronic alcohol alcoholism, mm -hmm. but it was probably due to a broken heart. I would like to think so anyway. Like 
because I mean it it must be so hard just going on with the fact you don't know who did it. You don't have that closure other than knowing that the moment she died the moment she died she would have found out. Right. You know, that's what I like to think anyways. Right. So um, since then, new evidence has come to light. A, a curtain that was found the same day, but over a hundred yards down the road, was recently sent back in for testing. When the test came back, it found that the hairs found on the curtain, which was handmade from an old bedspread of an avocado green color, had hairs that matched Amy's dog. So they believe they were transferred to the curtain from Amy's clothes you know, from her being wrapped in that curtain, which is why the jogger hadn't seen Amy's body prior, because there were interviews where the jogger stated her body was not there the day before. Um, that was the reason we did the description of the body. The police believed that because Amy was wrapped in that curtain, the jogger wouldn't have seen her, and it was just blown off and down the road where they later found the curtain. Right, because it was a it was a cornfield. And yeah, so it definitely would have yeah, blended in. Yeah, it would have it blended in. And when you're jogging, you're in you're in you're in your mindset. Mode, yeah, you're focusing on where you're going. And those and the fields would have been fallow. So you right. know, and unless that motion caught your eye, and my understanding, the jogger thought she was a mannequin. So originally? originally thought she was a mannequin when she first saw it and then right. she kind of like got a little bit closer and then realized it was a realized a body. Body and then ran down and called the police. Right. As for the suspects in the case, there is one that Amy's friends have given a description of which has followed this case from the beginning. There is a second composite sketch that came about because of the man who walked up to him at the Salvation Army as the bell ringer, which we gave that right. earlier. Um, which we'll post online um, for our webpage of all things Erie from Erie PA, uh, which will have the, the murder board, uh, uh, which there are two boards. Uh, it gives the timeline uh, from Amy from the beginning to the end, and then it's our facts board. Right. So, um, then there are those who live or did live in the community. Like we said, we will not name them because of having, not having the evidence to back up the claims and the fact that those who choose to stay in that community still have to live with the scrutiny of the people around them. What we do ask is that if anyone has any information, please contact Bay Village Police at area code 440-871 one two three four or the FBI at two one six five two two one four oh six using the reference number two one six six two two six eight four two and that is the end of that story uh, hopefully someone out there will finally come forward and give more information about this or the killer will step forward and turn themselves in. They've had 30 years to live a life where Amy has not. Um, I'm sorry, you're a sick, disgusting person. person. 
and I'm, I'm using that term loosely. Um, the, the fact that you had to take the life of a child just is wrong. And whether or not you've been caught for another crime or the fact that you've left the area and you've moved on doesn't negate the fact that you, you ended a 10-year-old girl's life before she really even got to it. And she did nothing to you. She didn't do a damn thing. So, um, and I just implore anybody who knows anything to just come forward. Um, even if you call the, the FBI, your local FBI office and say you know something. Um, because obviously the numbers we gave you are for the local FBI office in the Cleveland area. Um, just come forward. It's been 30 years. She needs to be put to rest. Um, her father and brother are still around. And I think they would like to know. They would like they would like that closure you know, to have that closure because Amy is buried by her mother. Her ashes, her remains are there. They're both buried in Wisconsin area. Um, and I just think that would be a nice thing to be done for her. So um, as for this second episode, I think that it's a good ending for. For this right now, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's ending on a solemn note, but life, you know, there is not always a happy ending. There's not always one that is figured out and it's done. Like, you have to face the reality of the fact that not everything's going to get figured out, not everything's going to, you know, be a closed case. We're not going to always give something where it's going to be finished, but, you know, the fact is, is if you see, if you see something, say, say something. something. Doesn't matter what the situation is, if it is making you uncomfortable, if you feel it is not right, say, say something. something, please. It could save someone's life. It could save a child's life. It could save. It 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 could make a difference, and and we personally know that. So, but definitely, if you see something, say something. So this is all things eerie from eerie. Signing off.